When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Brothers and sisters, grace and peace are yours in Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please be seated? There's a familiar account that we have before us this morning from John chapter 2, the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, and as I, uh, as I read through this, this passage and I read through these verses, um, a couple of phrases came to my mind, and they're two of my favorites. Um, the first one is, um, don't poke the bear. All right, that's one of my favorites. one of the ones uh, I actually use with my kids quite a bit. Um, my kids love to needle me. They love to, they know exactly where I'm the most vulnerable, and so they love to just come after me. And I'll tell them, don't poke the bear. And they know that I'm getting to that point where I'm going to have to take action, right? And so then, of course, being the diligent kids that they are, they keep doing it, right, just a little bit more. And then being the diligent father that I am, I wail on them just a little bit, right? Um, again, it's, don't worry. Some of you are like dialing CPS. It's, it's, I'm just joking around. We're just in lighthearted here. But, um, but the truth is, don't poke the bear is an important way for us to remember that the bear actually has some fangs, right? It has some claws. The second phrase that's like it is, you mess with the bull and you get the horns, right? It's exactly the same thing. It's the idea that, that if you go and you mess around with the bull, the chances are you're going to get gored, right? Again, I, I think that the, both of these phrases, I think if we just kept these in mind, uh, they'd probably save us from a world of trouble in our normal lives, if we were just reminded of these two simple things, and at the risk of grossly oversimplifying John chapter 2, both of these phrases apply to what Jesus does that day. Both of these phrases apply to what Jesus sees and the way that he interacts with the people on that day when he cleanses the temple. Because the truth is, God's people are poking the bear, or God's people are, are messing with the bull. And whether it's because they're ignorant or they're ignoring the consequences, and I always think interesting how closely those two words are tied together, ignorant or ignoring. Whether it's because they're ignorant or they're ignoring God's word, the fact is disobeying God has consequences, right? Disobeying God and disobeying his word has consequences, it has consequences for in every aspect of our lives. Now, go to the day of Jesus. Go to that day when he was in the temple. The people of that day, the, the Israelite people, the people who had followed God, they knew from infancy how serious God was about his rules and regulations for the temple, right? Again, just think of what you know, of all the ink that's spilled in the Old Testament, of how God has instructed them to build the temple and the tabernacle, the, the temporary temple, the, the, te, the, the big tent before it. 
God didn't say to them, you know, hey, just build it however you want. No, God gave them very specific instructions. This is how big everything is supposed to be. It's supposed to be these exact dimensions. And these parts of it you're supposed to cover with this material. And these parts you cover with this material. And when you set it up, I want the table here with a certain thing on top of it. And then I want a curtain in between it. And then I want another table. And I want a lampstand on top of that table. And the lampstand is supposed to have seven pieces. And by the way, it's all supposed to be made out of gold. God gives very specific instructions. He lets them know very clearly that this is a temple of his own design. He wants them to know this because of a really, really important truth. In fact, the most important truth of all when we think about the temple. It's because God promises that his spirit will dwell there. God promises that there in the midst of the temple and in the tabernacle before it, his glory will dwell among his people. That's where God will encounter them. The pure with the impure. The sacred in the midst of the profane. God promises that he'll dwell with his people there. And so he wants them, even by the picture of the temple itself, to be reminded of his grace and of what it means for him to come and dwell in their midst. God's regulations and his rules for the temple were known by the people of Jesus' day. They had been known since infancy. And yet now, what Jesus finds on this day is a blatant disregard for all of these temple regulations. When Jesus walks to the temple that day, he finds this. In the temple courts, there were people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. To make the matter worse, Jesus is going up to the temple to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was the commemoration of God's redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt. Remember that the Israelites had been slaves for more than 400 years at the hands of the Egyptians. And as their, slave, as their slave labor got more and more intense, the people called out to God and he heard them and he answered them. He answered their prayers for deliverance by sending them a deliverer. Do you remember his name? You can say it. It's not Jesus. This one's Moses, right? <clears throat> I think I'm supposed to say Jesus, but I feel like the answer is Moses. Yeah, the answer is Moses. Yeah, God sent them Moses to deliver them and, and God used Moses to display his strong arm. Do you remember that? That he would redeem his people by a strong arm. And so he sent these plagues on the people of Egypt, 10 in total. And he told them, even in the midst of this, when he was saying what was going to happen, he told them that they would commemorate this event for the rest of their existence. That this Passover was something that would be a sign to the people and to the next generation of what God had done. The fact that God had redeemed his people. So he told them to take an animal and to sacrifice it in this way. He told them to eat that animal with their cloaks tucked in. He told them to gather family around to make sure there was enough for everyone, but just enough. He told them to make sure that they baked their bread without any leavening. And he told them that as they kept this, as they commemorated this throughout their existence, that their children would ask why they did it. And then they would respond, because God delivered us. God was very strict in the ways that they were supposed to commemorate the Passover. It was about Passover time when Jesus went up to the temple. So a moment steeped in regulation and tradition to a place steeped in regulation and tradition which God had given to them, which they had known since infancy. These ways that God was demonstrating what he was going to do and what he had done in their midst. That's the situation when Jesus walks in and he finds people selling animals. 
And he finds money changers exchanging people's money, the money of their hometown, for the money of the temple. He finds a ruckus marketplace where otherwise it should be a sacred temple. He finds people more concerned about their exchange rate than about the God that they've come to worship. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus is consumed with zeal. Now, I think the best way for us to maybe understand what this is like, and I, I know that I'm, I'm risking something here and I'm going to maybe come a little too close to home than some of you would like, but the best way that I can describe the situation that Jesus finds that day of people just kind of buying and selling and be more consumed with the ceremony than with the God behind the ceremony is what happens around Christmas time, right? And around Christmas time, Grandma says, I'll take you out to dinner, but you have to go to Christmas Eve worship first. And since you want to go out to dinner with Grandma, you go to Christmas Eve worship. And you might realize maybe along the way that you didn't dress the way that Grandma wanted you to, and just to be safe, you'd kept a clip-on tie in the glove compartment. That's what God's people were doing. This was not a sacrifice, but instead a sacrifice of convenience. As much as of an oxymoron as that is. God had made provision for them. He had told them if they couldn't tote their own animals that they could buy them there in the temple. But now the people were praying upon the piety of the pilgrims. They were praying on the, the well-intentioned people who had come, and they were jacking up prices and profiteering off this. This wasn't, this wasn't piety. Instead, this was ecclesiastical tourism. And Jesus is overwhelmed by it because the people had turned the house of God from a sacred place into a marketplace. And they had done those very things which are commanded against in the Old Testament. You see, what God's people should have said in that moment in the midst of all that was happening was we know the words of the prophet Hosea from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What God cared about was not just the ceremony and the regulations, but God cared about the heart behind them, about the attitude of the pilgrims who had come, about the attitude and right worship of the people who were there to give honor to God and all that he had done. You see, God was supposed to be dwelling among his people. And so what we need to realize is that the people ought to have known better than this. They knew better than this. They knew from infancy what they were doing wrong. They knew that they were poking the bear. And yet they did it anyway. And God is zealous about his law. When God makes rules and regulations, when God gives these to his people, he intends for his people to respond in obedience, and they're not. Instead, the money changers are there, and the, cattle, and the, the people selling cattle and sheep and other animals for sacrifice. They're doing what they otherwise should have done, but now they're turning it into a market and making it a profit place instead of a sacred place. And they're going to see what happens when the bulls come out. They're going to get the horns. And so Jesus does this. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Get these out of here, Jesus yells. 
And you can picture it. You can, you can imagine the chaos that he created when he did this. In the midst of this crowded place, this temple where all these pilgrims had come, this ruckus marketplace, in the midst of it, suddenly Jesus is driving animals out with a whip. He's overturning money tables, and you can imagine the coins falling on the stone pavement below and the noise that they made. You can see Jesus shouting this, get these out of here. But the more that you read it, and the closer you inspect it, you realize that those who were in authority didn't necessarily think Jesus was doing anything wrong. You see, they don't object in a meaningful way. They don't say, no, the pilgrims need these things. They didn't lay themselves down in front of the animals and say, no, these have to be here so that they can sacrifice. Instead, they turn into a bunch of four-year-olds, right? Because their question is, what sign can you give us so that we will know that you have the authority to do these things? They turn into a bunch of four-year-olds to say, you're not the boss of me. How dare you? And Jesus doesn't directly answer their objection, does he? The objection that they raise to Jesus is one of authority. And his response is this. Destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're aghast at his response, right? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to destroy it? You're going to rebuild it? You're going to do this in three days? You can almost picture in their minds what's going on, right? That, that's a kind of a, an illustration of the temple there, those columns, you can almost see them saying destroying the temple would take more than three days, let alone rebuilding it. In fact, the Romans proved that when they destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Destroy this temple, Jesus says. And he begins to realize that there's a deeper meaning under his words. He's saying to them, why not? You're already defiling it. You're already not using the temple for the purpose for which it was intended. You've already driven the presence of God. You've already driven his glory out of this temple and turned it into something that you wanted. You've already taken the sacred and made it profane. So what's the difference? Go ahead and go all the way and destroy it. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. And then John adds these editorial comments. Right, starting with verse 21. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. You see, the disciples took this event with them for the entire ministry of Jesus. Right, this happens at the beginning of the Gospel of John. They took this event and they always puzzled over what it all meant. And they puzzled over it right up to the end of Jesus' life through his crucifixion and resurrection. But the resurrection recolors everything. The resurrection changes their impression of what happened. As they sort of puzzled about why Jesus would do this, then later they began to realize why Jesus would do this. That the zeal for obedience that Jesus displayed was because Jesus wanted his father to have a relationship with his people. The temple was supposed to be that place of relationship, but they had defiled it. And so Jesus had to come. And there in his resurrected body, God once again dwelt with his people. The sacred with the profane, the pure with the impure. God 
being the God of his people. This is what happens in the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is the place of relationship with God and that would return now to the proper use of it, that this zeal for the house of God of which Jesus spoke, this zeal which consumed him on that day was a purification, was a preparation, was a cleansing of all that the people had done wrong, of all the ways that they had defiled the regulations of God. But the story is not complete yet. Instead, into the story, we have to bring the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, we are told that there will be a new place where God will commune with his people, where God will have a relationship with them and will dwell in their midst. It says this, your bodies are not your own. They were purchased at a price. And just before it, for don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? That, brothers and sisters, you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. That we are the place where God himself dwells. And that in us is that display of God's power. But that's frightening, isn't it? Because we realize that by our sin and by our sinful nature that we've defiled the temple of God. We realize that by our sin and our sinful nature we've, we've turned that which otherwise would be sacred into something profane. And we know that God is serious about his law, that God's serious about the regulations that he has set up for his people, and that if you poke the bear, you might not like the consequences. If you mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. And into our lives, in the power of the Spirit, comes one to cleanse us from our sin. And that cleansing is somewhat violent within us, isn't it? As there's this battle between our sinful nature and the good that we know we ought to do, between our sinful nature and the Spirit of God, at war in this battle over sin, this struggle that's going on for us saying, but we love the fact that we get our values from the marketplace. But God wants to do something sacred inside of us. As he cleanses us from the inside out, he purifies us, and he does it with the same purpose that he did the temple of that day, the same zeal that it consumed him, the zeal that says God wants to have a relationship with you. And so he's casting this sin out from you, and we're remembering the words of Jesus, destroy this temple, take it down, and I will rebuild it. And I'll rebuild it in three days. That by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your temple you are rebuilt. Rebuilt into a place where God will come and make his dwelling. Rebuilt in a place where with the old cast out, he will fill you with new and good things by his gifts that instead of being filled with his sin, with sin of the world, instead you are filled with the love of God and that his forgiveness becomes the mark. And I'll say just one thing more that as we dwell in these temples that give glory to God, as we give glory to God in all parts of our lives, that that same testimony becomes true. The testimony from the Passover before that others will look and say, why do you do this? And we can say, because the Lord has delivered me. Because of what the Lord has done inside of you, and inside of me, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you are the place where God will dwell. May God make us zealous for obedience, zealous to follow after his word, zealous to embrace the gift that he has given to us, 
zealous to recognize that Jesus Christ has raised anew the temple of God where he dwells in love inside of each one of us. For the glory of Jesus Christ, amen.